So this morning, we're going to continue our, the theme of last week's message and talking about how do we deal with conflict. Is there anyone here who thinks that learning how to deal with conflict better is not really a necessary topic? Uh, just on the way to church this morning, we happened to pass a couple uh, on the bridge, on a bridge on the way here. And the, they were screaming at each other. And I thought, I wonder if I should invite them to church. Sorry. Am I doing something here? What's going on? Uh, conflict is everywhere. I read yesterday a CNN article online something called, uh, uh, they were talking about travel shaming. You heard of this? That uh, because of the virus, that people who travel uh, and then post their travels uh, on social media almost get instantaneous responses from back home saying, you know, it's really not responsible for you to do that. And so people are over, this young lady was talking about going and visiting her boyfriend who is from Switzerland, and they found a way to meet in, uh, I think, Croatia. And um, uh, the, the joy of being able to be with the one she loved was now coupled with the fact that she realized she was going to have to explain. Uh, and she said, I was doing everything legal. I was trying to be as safe as possible, and yet... There is, uh, this was happening. And so it was a pretty actually uh, long and interesting article. But, you know, the, the conflict comes from some people who had travel plans early on in the virus, had to cancel those. And now that their friends who have their travel plans now are being able to enjoy that, they feel like there's some envy wrapped up in all this. So there, there's just so many reasons that conflict happens. And if we're honest with one another, uh, the church really isn't all that much better at dealing with conflict. And when you talk about the church, I'm talking about the people who make up the church. Uh, in many ways, we are being led along by the way our culture evaluates issues, and we find ourselves in the middle of conflict. Honestly, the stress of the last seven months has revealed many fissure lines that existed, certainly before the virus, um, but it has just accentuated them. These divisions last, uh, exist along uh, social lines, racial lines, theological lines within the church. Um, we're divided, fractured, and we are distrusting oftentimes of one another. So I feel like, and I felt like it was important to do a message really pointed on this this week. It's imperative that Christians be serious about how uh, we are commanded to be united. When we started our study of Ephesians months ago, one of the very first themes that I laid out, and some of you weren't here then, but was this theme that comes through in the book of Ephesians, you belong here. You, because of what Christ has done, belong here in the church. You belong in Christ. You belong in his kingdom. You belong among his people. Because of everything that Jesus has done for you, 
and that Jesus is the one that establishes our, our identity and our true value. Now, as we've made our way through Ephesians for the last probably two months, we have been unpacking Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2 through the end of chapter 3 about unity within the church. So not only do we belong here because of what Jesus has done for us, but we are to be here and be united with one another. This unity is what Christ died for. Uh, He talks about between the Jew and the Gentile, removing the dividing wall of hostility. And that dividing wall sadly exists between many relationships. It doesn't have to be the issue of ethnic or religious uh, past that divided the early church, but that dividing line of hostility truly exists within the church. And so just like Paul taught about it uh, in his day, I would like to talk about it this morning. Last Sunday, as we opened up the fourth chapter of Ephesians, we saw that it's going to require a a sacrifice. We are to bear with one another. Uh, Bearing with one another implies that it isn't always pleasant. We are to be patient. That word used to be uh, translated, be long-suffering with one another. We are to suffer long with one another. And that's that's just a dying virtue. Right? We don't suffer long for anything these days, and yet we're called to do that. So it requires, requires a sacrifice. But all of these things that we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, uh, presuppose that conflict is to be expected in relationships, even relationships within the church. And so true unity has to look to something else. And Paul talked about those unifying uh, uh, realities. We looked at those last week. But true unity is more than just leaving, is more than just not leaving a relationship, right? We all can think of probably real examples of husbands and wives who may literally be living in the same house but are not united. There's not a real unity, even though the relationship is intact. True unity, and we're going to see this, involves the work, and I use that word intentionally because it's work, of understanding other people and then seeking to reconcile through real grievances. If we're truly to be united, and that, this, this applies to the world, but it but God's true, God's people specifically ought to really lean into God's word. I'm not saying this is not true for everybody, but we're God's people. And if we're going to be united, then we need to follow what the scriptures teach us and work towards understanding one another and then seeking to reconcile through real grievances. That's why we're spending another week. Now, Uh, There's a man named Ron Craybill. He does a lot of writing uh, on the issue of conflict. And he said this uh, in this online article, how to turn a disagreement into a feud. Five principles. How to turn a disagreement into a feud. Number one, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict. Letting your own feelings build up so you are in an explosive frame of mind. Number one. Number two, 
If you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. The use of a, cle- uh, of a clinching Bible verse is helpful. Speak prophetically for truth and justice and do most of the talking. Number four, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate such conversation. And number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows that the other person is merely jealous of you. So you want to know how to turn a disagreement into a feud? Follow Mr. Cravel's humorous advice. It's humorous, but to be honest with you, I can look at this and see where I've done some of this. So I assume that you can. But let's get into what the Bible says. So in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to, start, we're going to read. It's, it's a lengthy portion, but it's worth uh, hearing. So I want to just, because you're going to be doing some sitting, I want to invite you to stand. Um, and, then, uh, and then we'll sit as I exposit what we read. Starting in verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to them, said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You see the very that's the that's the very first thing he says in fifteen. So Peter's trying to understand this. How how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all the debt, all his debt. But also, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You may be seated. I want us to look at six biblical principles for dealing with conflict. And we're not going to be able to, there's a lot in here. There's things that we're not going to be able to cover, things that are <clears throat> probably uh, issues of curiosity. <clears throat> but I'd like to pull out six principles for dealing with conflict. And here's number one. Just because you've, you're the one who's been offended doesn't mean you're off the hook. Just because you're the one who has been offended doesn't mean you're off the hook. I've met many miserable people in my life who could recount with clarity all the offenses of that have happened to him, happened to them. I think you know, of individuals in particular. And when you ask, well, when did this happen? Sometimes it was years in the past. It's as if they've rehearsed the offense for over and over. And when I ask what they, would, what they did about it, oftentimes the issue is nothing. I just walked away. I just left. I couldn't stand that person. And here they are years later, still carrying the scars of that wound. I'm not saying there wasn't a real offense, and I'm not saying there wasn't a real scar or a real wound, but nothing was done. Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This can be really hard, I, I'll admit. When someone uh, hurts you or sins against you, going and talking to that individual is not easy. And yet that's what our Lord tells us to do. Depending on the nature of the relationship, I mean, it's, it's way harder to talk to a boss than it is to a spouse or a friend. It's, it's way harder to talk to a spouse than it is uh, to a neighbor. Or actually, that could be reversed, depending on the relationship. And yet we're commanded. Now, what I find interesting is that the word here that Jesus uses for the, to, to tell. He says, go and tell him. That word tell is not the normal word for speaking. In the, in the original language. The word for tell is actually, uh, it's alegto, and it's, it means to convince with compelling evidence to prove wrong. You hear, you hear what that's, Jesus is saying? If your brother has sinned against you, you need to go to them with an argument, you know, with a, not, not an argumentative way, but with, a, with an argument, with, with evidence, with with something. It's not just enough to say, you heard me. That may be true, but it's not helpful. You need, there needs to be a conversation and an explanation. It's not just enough to let them know that uh, they'd sinned against you. You got you to gotta work through it. But the easiest thing, honestly, is to do nothing. And yet it's the most painful. To stay silent ends in fractured fragile, 
and broken relationships. Last night, our daughter Savannah, and I got her permission this morning to say this, we were on the car ride uh, home. We'd pick them up, some friends, and she shared with the family, as only a six-year-old could, how she felt that COVID had changed our family and that the older ones, she was talking about her siblings, uh, had changed. And basically she was feeling alone. She was feeling like she was being dismissed. And, and uh, that could have been very easy for a six-year-old just feel like, how am I going to get this across? But she, she, she did, and we stopped, and nobody was allowed to interrupt, and we just let her talk. And we re- realized that, yeah, we have in some ways, been dismissive of her. And so it gave us an opportunity to see a window into her heart to understand her and to seek to build back into her. My question is, how many broken relationships in your life could there be a straight line drawn to your willingness just to be silent and not to say anything? Now, related to this issue of going to the individual and speak, telling them about it is the issue of timing. Because truly, the sooner the better. We're going to get to this later in Ephesians chapter 4, but it, the apostle tells us there, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Sometimes you can't help to wait except to wait to the next day, but the principle here is deal with offenses quickly because over time they just magnify and they, and they solidify in our hearts. So that's principle number one. Just because you've been offended doesn't mean you're off the hook. Principle number two I see in Matthew chapter 18 is this. Keep the circle of awareness as tight as possible for as long as possible. Keep the circle of awareness as tight as possible for as long as possible. As sinful humans, we are going to hurt one another. It's inevitable. Stress, miscommunication, pain that we may be feeling make us susceptible to doing things that hurt. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. People that are hurt, hurt others. These can all be factored into what leads to an offense. I find that most offenses initially are rarely intentional. Let me ask you this, how many times have you had maybe a child or a close friend or something come to you and confront you about something that you said or did, and in your heart you actually said, you could say, I had no idea, I am sorry. Can, can, you, can you think of times like that in your own life? I think offenses oftentimes are unintentional, but it doesn't mean that they're not real, it doesn't mean that they don't hurt, but it just means that 
There's only one person who can do anything about it. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15 that you go to him and, and go to tell him his fault between you and him alone. But regrettably, we've all done this, oftentimes the offense is tried in the courtroom of public opinion ever before it's brought to the person who did the offending. And so gossip becomes a barrier to conflict resolution because by the time it gets back to the person who did the thing wrong, intentionally or unintentionally, there's this whole network of relationships who's been brought in and now all of a sudden it's not a matter of reconciling with one person, it's reconciling with a group. Gossip becomes a barrier because it's easy to share with friends who are sympathetic listeners. But what happens is that the circle of distrust just grows. Now, sometimes going one-on-one doesn't work right away. And Jesus says, you know, there's got to be a receptiveness on the, on the person's part. And sometimes that first uh, in ca- occasion for reconciliation doesn't bring about reconciliation. And what happens then, Jesus says, well, let's bring some more people into this. But we're still not putting it out on Facebook. That happens. And then all of a sudden, it's gone viral. Jesus makes a provision to bring in outsiders and says, if he will not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along with you. But this is only if the offender won't listen or take it serious. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. It says, whoever... This is Solomon writing what he, his wisdom to his son. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Can you think of a situation where that happened? Where someone just started repeating a matter and wind up just destroying friendships. I can. Third principle Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18 is that the goal is not to win an argument, but to reconcile the relationship. That's the goal. It's not to win an argument. It's not to get what you want. The goal is to reconcile a relationship. Whenever a sin or offense occurs, a tragedy is a broken relationship. That's what sin does. It divides. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden when our first parents sinned against God and re- rebelled against Him in the Garden of Eden. There was a broken relationship. And we see this happening all around us. These broken relationships in families, lifelong friends, within church. We, I, I am intimately acquainted with a situation where a friend of decades, I mean like 40-year-long friendship, ended over some offense, and, and the one party is completely oblivious to it, and the other party is refusing to talk. 
And the friend, a 40-year friendship is over. It happens in churches. It happens between ethnic groups. It happens all over. It, happened, it was happening between that couple on the bridge. Hopefully they'll reconcile. Now, I believe this grieves the heart of God. That's why I wanted to talk about it this morning. And people say, well, I hate dealing with conflict. Yeah, I actually don't know anyone who loves dealing with conflict. Some people just are willing to do it, even though they hate it. And if you're not willing to deal with it, the conflict's going to remain. So I ask the question, how important is the relationship to you? How important is that relationship to you? Is it as important as that relationship is to God? Do you believe that your willingness to walk away from a relationship and not reconcile has God's blessing? Verse 15, Jesus says, If he listens, you have gained your brother. You've got the relationship back. That's the goal. Someone has to be to make the first move if reconciliation is going to happen. So here, Jesus calls the offended person to make the move. But elsewhere in Scripture, it's the offender who has to make the move. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. So, this is verse, Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, so he's talking about Jewish people in Jerusalem at the altar. They have brought an animal to be slain. For, that's the way the Jewish system worked at the time Jesus said this. And he, and he says, if you are at the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There have been literally times, Tammy will confirm this, that I have been starting to preach a sermon and in my heart, I'm like, I cannot do this until I reconcile with my wife. And I've come down, and it's been awkward, really <laughs> weird awkward, because you've got a church full of people like, what's going on? And I've had to ask her forgiveness before I stood up. But there's something about religion that you can do religious stuff and just throw a cloak over broken relationships and feel like everything's okay. Jesus says it's better to put your religiosity on pause because reconciled relationships are that important. The goal is not to win, but to reconcile. Now, those are the first three principles. We're going to go a little bit longer today because I want to get to the last three. But before we move on in here, I want just to draw, uh, just help you guys see this. Uh, I'm pulling out these principles on Jesus' teaching to the church. 
I believe that these principles that I've shared are true for all human relationships, but they're especially taught for the church and how to keep the church together and pure. Uh, And Jesus' heart is obviously for his church to be united. That's what we've been talking about through Ephesians, unity. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed, said, I pray that these all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may may believe that you have sent me. Unity affects our witness. This stuff that we're talking about affects our ability to show the world that Jesus is actually worth that Jesus actually came, that Jesus is actually worth submitting your life for. So we have to take this serious because eternal stakes are at play. And you know this is true because you know people who want nothing to do with the church or God or the scriptures because they have seen the infighting and divisiveness of churches. And so Jesus gives us a blueprint for how to deal with it. So are we going to take it serious? Fourth principle. Forgiveness is never to be withheld, even with repeated offenses. Now, I've got to make a distinction here. We're moving. They're related subjects, but they're different. Reconciliation and forgiveness. We're talking about forgiveness now. Okay? And I'm going to, I'll explain this in a minute. In response to Jesus' teaching on reconciliation, about gaining a brother, Peter asked a very normal question. And the question is essentially this. What is the boundary or extent that I have to forgive? Now, Peter gives in his mind what's a very generous number. How many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times, or seven times? Now, that day and age, in the first century, a Jew was only required to forgive three times. So Peter here is stretching that, kind of maybe throwing out a little self-righteousness there, I don't know, uh, but saying seven times. And what does Jesus say? He says, verse 22, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times 7. Now, some, some translations say 77 times. Some say 70 times 7. So it's either 77 or 490. But the point is, Jesus is essentially saying, you should stop keeping score. You should stop counting. There is no limit, Peter, to how much you are to forgive. Forgiveness is never to be withheld, even with repeated offenses. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Love, in the ESV it says, Love is not resentful. Now, interesting, ESV chose that term resentful. But how does someone become resentful? How do you walk around resentful? Because you have harbored offenses. You have let them stick around. You have not forgiven. Actually, the, it is, the NIV translates it, I think, more accurately when it says, love keeps no record of wrong. 
I ask myself, have I ever loved anybody when I read that? This can feel like we are setting ourselves up for being abused. If we're just willing to forgive that open-handedly, feels like we are setting ourselves up for being abused. So that's why I want to distinguish this issue of forgiveness and reconciliation, okay? We are able to forgive even if the other person does not want to reconcile. We can forgive even if reconciliation is impossible. Can you forgive a deceased parent for something that they did that was never reconciled? Yes, you can. You can forgive someone who doesn't care, who has maintained antipathy towards you. Because forgiveness is a vertical relationship. Forgiveness is something that you do in relationship with God. You don't forgive God, but it is something that through relationship with God you can extend. That's all forgiveness requires. Reconciliation is horizontal. Reconciliation requires the other person to be willing to listen as we read in verse 15. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But what if he doesn't listen? Can you be you can't ever really be fully reconciled, but you can forgive. And that's important because forgiveness is the foundation for reconciliation. Forgiveness has to come first because of that vertical relationship. And when we can forgive, then the hope for reconciliation exists. Principle number five. We must remember God's boundless mercy and his forgiveness towards us. In some ways, Jesus telling Peter you've got to forgive 70 times 7 is unreasonable, right? It feels unreasonable. So in order to demonstrate the reasonableness of his unreasonable requirement, Jesus tells us an incredible story which is called the parable of the unforgiving servant, verses 21 to 35. I'm not going to read it again, but just a couple points will help understand this. There's a king, and there's servants. And the king is requiring of his servants to give account. And one servant, we're not told how he did this, but he got really indebted. To the king. He owed him 10,000 talents. Now that's a word we don't use very much, so let me tell you. A talent is essentially worth 20 years of wages for, the, for a common laborer. So if you take the equivalent of $30,000 a year as a standard wage in modern times, that would be 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of $6 billion debt. That's what this man owed to the king. Now, this guy knew he couldn't pay it, even though he said, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. 
That was crazy. That's probably how he got in debt. He didn't really, he didn't know money, <laughs> didn't know how to handle money. But anyways, so he begged for mercy, and the king extended him mercy, and he cleared a debt that was unpayable. That man walks out of the king's chambers and sees a servant who's owed him some money for some time, 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was, in that day, the equivalent of a day's wage, okay? So you think about making $15 an hour, 100 denarii, that'd be about 20 weeks' worth of work. The modern equivalent would be about ten dollars to $12,000. That's what this servant owed his servant. Now, ten dollars to $12,000 is something. I don't have anyone who owes me $10,000. I wish I had someone who owed me $10,000. But so it's something. The offense from servant to servant was significant, but comparatively to what the king had just forgiven him, it was minuscule. It was insignificant. You see, this is the point. Our offenses towards one another though there's something comparatively to our offenses against God are nothing. And to be able to receive free pardon of the debt, the tremendous $6 billion debt that we owe God, and it's probably a lot more than that, to be honest with you, and then not be willing to turn and forgive something comparatively small, even though it's something, is wrong. Too many people hold on to grievances that are real grievances because they do not view them through the lens of the mercy of God towards them in Christ. We in Christ have been forgiven all of our debt through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death, through Jesus' burial, through Jesus' resurrection, and faith in that alone, we have been forgiven of all our debt before God. And that must lead us to a posture of forgiveness and hopefully reconciliation with the people who have hurt us. And when I say that, I mean the people who have hurt us the most. Lastly, sixth principle, unwillingness to reconcile and to forgive is a sign of unbelief and rebellion against God. An unwillingness to reconcile and forgive is a sign of unbelief and rebellion against God. Now, this is a very hard statement, but I believe it's true to the text. If we're going to take Jesus' word serious, the hardness of heart that moves someone to be unwilling to reconcile and forgive or to ask for forgiveness, uh, all of that, I mean, from the offender to the offended, all, all sides, this, when this hardness of heart exists, 
it's showing that we really don't know God. Look here. For the offender, for the one who has offended, we see if they're unwilling to listen, even when it's brought before the church, Jesus says in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is someone who is ambivalent to the things of God. Not that Gentiles or tax collectors couldn't be saved, right? But they're using, he's using a metaphor, a reference of the people who don't care about the things of God. And if someone is unwilling to recognize that what they've done has hurt someone else and to seek to, be, to listen to them in order to be reconciled, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. They're really not one of his. That's pretty tough. But we've got to take Jesus' word serious. But what about for the one who's been offended? What about for the one who's been offended? Well, to that I say, we have to look at verse 35. Very last words of Jesus in this section. This is in response to Peter's question, how often do I have to forgive And he tells this story, basically he's saying, Peter, unless you see that your sin that you've been forgiven by God should drive you to forgive over and over and over, even if someone hurts you, even if someone sins against you repeatedly, unless you're willing to forgive that, verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's hard. That's hard. But it's true. And it's the only thing that's going to allow for the church of Jesus Christ to be united and to be light in this world that holds grudges perpetually. Is to know how much we've been forgiven. So let me conclude with this, and then we're going to sing the doxology, and then Zach's going to give our benediction. I read this quote. It says this, We can divide the river's flow and subsequently channel its splintered force in any way that our selfish agendas might compel us. However, it all ends up in the sea. For although the river's power might be diminished by such meddling, its destination is not. Friends, we have an opportunity to be a powerful witness to this world by being united and reconciled and seeking to forgive. And if through our unwillingness to do that, or do it well, our river is divided, we may all end up in the same place. But we will not have the power that we could have. If sin and Satan can divide us, it will diminish that witness. So let's take serious our responsibility to seek forgiveness and reconciliation in whatever relationships 
God would apply this to your heart.